Trump impeachment. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Pregnant Muslim woman punched and stomped. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Your poetry sucks. You should be a dog walker instead. Scroll, scroll. Charges drop for sexual assault case. Scroll, scroll. Detroit schools rank lowest again in reading scores. Scroll, ice breaks coming to your city. Scroll, black man killed at hands of police. Scroll, still no water and no justice for Flint. I was never taught how to deal with hateful headlines. Never taught how to deal with treacherous trauma. Never taught how to deal with backstabbers and bullying. Had to teach myself how to unplug, but how can I unplug the same plug my success depends on? As soon as I unplug back in, there's more hate waiting. Fannie Lou Hamer said it best, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah, I'm stressed and I'm pressed because I'm gonna be the best, but at least I stay dressed to impress. God has put me through this test we call life. Alhamdulillah, he blessed me with his power to express. But I dare anyone to suppress. I'm a huff up my chest, let these words with the punching and place your lack of intelligence on house arrest. Better watch what I say, these words will make me blow like a suicide fighter. I'm the teacher that will ride or die, so legendary my poems will go platinum after I die. I'm tired of my own kind treating me like the devil. Like this country doesn't already see me like the devil. Not Muslim enough, not American enough, not Arab enough, not... African enough. I'm really the best of them all because I'm a blend of them all. Algerian warrior in my blood, fighter to the bone, to radical for the masses, got an X on my back like Malcolm. I'm fearless now like Malcolm. Everything I do like Malcolm, got the spirit of Malcolm. I look up and say, would you be proud? I kept the revolution alive and it sure will be televised. Stop telling me who I got to be and what I got to do. I'm on a mission to fulfill my true vision. Like the prophet of God, I only seek prophecies, no fallacies. Preaching consciously, our ancestors' chronology. Here to deliver the message in my lesson. I'm the chosen one writing the truth. I speak the truth. I spit the truth. I am the truth. My students are my witness like the two angels on my shoulders. I'm Queen Nefertiti in real life. Too ambitious building a kingdom to be a wife. I want to apologize for who I am and what I stand for. If you got one more thing to say, I promise it might be the last time you stand. For don't be fooled by this cute face. I'm the one that revolutionizes your kids, their kids, and their kids. So choose which side of history will you stand for. Hey, it's Danielle. And Zaina. And welcome to Unsweetened and Unfiltered, the podcast where we elevate the voices of women by sharing their stories of struggle while also highlighting their success. We wanted to create a space for women to feel like they're not alone in whatever hardship they may be facing. Some conversations may be lighthearted, while others may touch upon taboo topics ranging from mental health to women's bodies and spiritual struggles, and we don't shy away from any of it. But our overall mission is to make every woman realize that she is not alone. We are all in this together, I promise. Our sole purpose is to build relationships, not barriers, between you and the woman who may need you. We're here to provide inspiration and to build courage. Tune in every Wednesday where we'll feature an insightful guest who will help us reach these goals. We laugh, we ugly cry, and we'll probably laugh some more. So plug in your headphones, grab your favorite cup of coffee or shea, and get ready to become a part of this unbreakable sisterhood. You are tuning into season two of Unsweetened and Unfiltered. Unsweetened and Unfiltered. 
Welcome to episode four of season two. And you guys just listened to a piece by today's guest, who is Bayan Funas, who is also, I consider a good friend. She's amazing. She's incredible. She's very talented. And what she does, I mean, basically what she just said uh, yeah. right now. I got was chills great. all over just listening to that. That was incredible. Yeah, there's some pieces like, you know how sometimes it's like interesting how your body just all of a sudden yeah. gets chills. It's like it <laughs> understands like this actually is kind of, you know. It's impactful. Speaking to your soul. It yeah. is impactful. I like how she just talked about social media and how like consuming all this trauma day in and day out. And then you also wonder how do kids navigate social media? I'm, and- I'm so happy I didn't have Instagram or even Facebook when I was growing up 11, 12 years old because I don't know if I would be the same person I am today if I did experience what I'm experiencing now at that age yeah I think we're definitely going to have episodes future episodes on bullying social media and like you know how sometimes like back in our day it's like bullying ended at the school like you ended up going home and you go home to a loving family and whatnot but now nowadays it's like you take the bullying along with you because it is online these days yeah and I feel like especially young kids don't know the impact of just turning off your phone or like deleting Instagram, like that could literally save your life. And I feel like as adults, we're slowly learning the negativity that Instagram and social media in general brings along. But as a kid, differentiating between real life and what's going down on Instagram, I don't think they know that difference. It's interesting you bring up that point because I think even as adults nowadays, because again of social media and just, and I don't want to blame social media, but it's the connection that you have with other people around the world. You know what I mean? Like it's not, you could be sitting in your home, but you're still connected to other people. Mm -hmm. But even as adults, we face this. Like this happened to us just the other day, basically. Like you, you face this bullying, this harassment at at even our age and you sit there and you wonder like even I I really almost kind of like I don't want to say hyperventilate or anything like that but I was just like what is going on yeah and it's like I, I imagine myself what if I was a young kid dealing with this like here I am a grown adult and I, not that I didn't know how to navigate it, but I was like, it I can't. caught you by surprise, I think. Yeah, because you don't expect this. I think it's also because, like, you know, everybody's dealing with something on their own. And that's why I can't stress enough how important it is to be kind to others. And it's like, it's not okay to mock people. It's not okay to be just rude towards somebody. And if you don't understand what they're trying to imply and maybe even their social media posts, ask. Ask privately. Don't mock. Ask yeah. privately. I think a lot of people, and that's, I think, what got me mad about myself that. I try to address the situation, try to do damage control. Again, you guys, this is just something that happened over social media that I it's wish it didn't. It's something so silly, yeah. but like, it's just so annoying that we have to deal with this stuff. It is, but I mean, it's, but at the same time, we should talk about it mm-hmm. type of thing. Like yeah, it yeah. happened, it happened. But I feel like that was something like, I wish it was handled behind closed doors, but that's what I'm trying to say. Like social media can really get under your skin. And the one important thing is like, do not allow somebody to put you out of character and try to change who you really are and even because that's something that I was looking at myself I was like you know what I should have just completely ignored that even if person a were saying all these things about you I I learned that honestly we have an amazing support group we do so when I seen that amazing support group come in our defense I realized like maybe I should have never even opened my mouth Yeah, it's honestly so crazy. And I actually read something on Instagram the other day that said how people treat you is a reflection of how they feel about themselves. So if they're treating you in a negative way, it's because that's how they see themselves. And it really makes things like it puts things into light. Like if someone's bullying you, there's an underlining reason why they're doing that. It's because they're going through things on their own and they don't know how to kind of navigate the feelings within themselves. So they put it out on other people. And it's just like for us to be in our late 20s, early 30s, sitting at work, having to deal with this completely 
different life on social media and like getting quote unquote bullied on social media. It's like, how old are we? Like, why are we back in middle school? Why are we allowing ourselves to do that and be a part of something like that? I think I learned a lot from it just to not allow anybody to get under, get under my skin, to not take things to heart. But at the same time, I think what really bothered me is just the things that I think just the way that person was just twisting it. Right. And I think that that's what really bothered me. But at the same time, if you have a good support group of people who really know who you are, know what your intentions are and everything like that, do not go blue in the face trying to prove yourself and try to stoop that low to that person's level because that's what they want to do. Exactly. And I've allowed myself to kind of go down a few notches on that ladder. I allowed that no, person to do that. I don't think you did. I think it's normal. I'm really hard on myself and I no. wish I never did that. I think it's it's normal to get upset when someone's calling you out on something so ridiculously untrue. It's easy to get caught up in that. But I like how you said, don't let anyone else kind of pull you out of character. And I think we always have to remind ourselves, like, this is not who I am, so I'm not going to allow myself to go there. there. That's exactly it. So just any piece of advice for anybody, like, just you don't know what somebody's struggling with. Like even that day, honestly, it was a really hard day for me and I was yeah. struggling a lot. And then for that to happen, I think that's what made me more just sensitive mm -hmm. to the whole situation. But I just think it's all a learning lesson for every single person out there. And I don't think I'll ever, ever just even give anybody like that the time of day at all whatsoever. I just know my character. And I think that's what's so important to know. You know who you are. You know what your intentions are. And you know what you mean by the things that you post and stuff like that. And we try our best. And that's, that's the one thing Zane and I had hesitations about when starting a podcast every time I you and I did ever did ever did anything we did it on our own terms in our mm -hmm. own space but yeah. now this is like a public platform like a truly public platform so it's like it's a lot of anxiety dealing with you saying something and wondering how the public is going to react to and it and that's why our inbox is always open our dms are always open so if you ever read something or hear something that we say and you don't understand what exactly we mean or you don't know our intentions ask us because things get lost in translation a hundred percent things takes, are going to get lost in translation and it takes one person to try to flip your story yep. it's so scary it really is that's what social media like, it scares the hell out yeah, of you yeah, thank I mean, god thank god we had our amazing support group yeah, thank god we had friends to come to our aid as dramatic as that sounds <laughs> but it needed to be done but let's transition to today's episode which, which is, I'm really excited for. I'm really excited for. And we finally have somebody who is an educator, who's a teacher, who is our guest for today's episode. I think um, it's been a long time coming. I love, I, I want to portray teachers. I want to actually just showcase all the hard work that they do day in and day out. Yeah. And oftentimes you just think like, oh, they're, they have such an easy life. They have summers off. They have a nine to three job or nine to five job and that's it. But when you listen to today's guest, who is the one and only Bayan Finesse, you see how much work she puts in to um, just her position as an educator. So if you guys don't know who she is, she's an educator and she's a youth mentor in Detroit. She actually graduated from the University of Michigan in 2014. And just this past year, she also received her master's degree in educational leadership and policy from the University of Michigan. She's very passionate, you guys. She's really passionate about making educational reforms in um, her community, which is specifically like more predominantly poor communities of color and uh, she also created an art and poetry club for the Detroit youth and it's beautiful because she wanted them to heal but in a very creative way and I love that I love when teachers go one step beyond and tries to understand her students and where they're coming from and how to help them yeah it's not about just teaching off a lesson plan it's it's getting to know your students and adapting those lessons to what their needs are and what they 
what they're going to benefit from the most. And she's a poet herself, you guys. Yes. She's part of a, an all-women's group called Wisdom. And it's incredible that the work that they're doing and how they're also giving back to their community. And I really want you guys to support Bayan. Um, we're going to definitely plug her poetry book on here. Zena, you, you want to say the title and where they can find it, too. Yes, it's, yes, I love the title and I love the whole like cover of the book. It's honestly so powerful. The book is called Diary of a Daughter in Diaspora. And you can find it on Amazon. And it's just, it's amazing. It's such a powerful book. And I love being able to see myself in that cover. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, even because I, it's her. Yes. It's an illustration of her. It's a woman of color with her turban on and everything. So it's nice to see somebody that, you know, almost resembles you or the community that you come from. Exactly. You know what I mean? Because our community is beautiful. It's so diverse. So it's just nice to see that on mm-hmm. a front cover. And I it's like awesome. that she owns it. And that is who Bayan is. And that's why I love her. Yeah. So I awesome. really can't wait to dive into this episode. Let's dive in. Let's do it. I think teaching is one of the most profound, important professions out in the world today. And I'm so happy, Bian, that you're sitting down with us. Can you give a little brief description of who you are and what you do for a living? Of course. So I just want to say I'm super happy to be here today and join this amazing podcast with two beautiful boss babes. That's my anthem. <laughs> I'm like your number one fan girl. <laughs> That's literally my anthem. So yeah, my name is Bayan. If you don't already know me, people also know me as That Algerian. That's my um, tag on Instagram. I'm currently an educator. I've been working in uh, Detroit area schools. Uh, This is about my sixth year now and my third official year teaching. Um, I also have two degrees from University of Michigan. Uh, I got my bachelor's in 2014 with a women's studies degree. Um, And later on last year, actually in 2019, I received my master's in educational leadership and policy, as well as a admin certification uh, for K-12. So I also published um, my first book of poetry in August 2018. It's called Diary of a Daughter in Diaspora. It's self-published. And you can um, find that on Amazon. And uh, yeah, I'm a poet too. That's my second job, basically. Girl, can I step my fingers for that <laughs> resume right there? Because mashallah. Yes. And by the way, I've read your poetry book. But Yan is somebody who, when I wanted to self-publish and I was struggling and I didn't know how to go about it, she right away insisted on helping me. So I really want to thank you because there's not a lot of people who actually want to help somebody else, especially that wants to do the same thing as them. So I really want to thank you. And that's how I honestly came about, like finding out about your poetry book which is really, really good, really deep. And I really, really love it. So I advise everybody to go to Amazon and not only purchase it, but leave a review too. Because I think that would help as well. And especially because you do talk about very deep things, especially as an educator. And I want to get into that. Like, I feel like it's so interesting to always, you know, ask an educator, why did you want to become a teacher? Because I think it's more, it's not just black and white. Like, oh, I think that was just something I decided to do. I think it's a little bit deeper than that. And I just want to know what made you go into this career path? That's a good question because it was not planned. And I think a lot of us are definitely at a point in our lives where where we are, it was not planned at all. Even (laughs) when we're younger, we're thinking, I'm going to study this and then I'm going to become that. And then I'm going to get married at this age. I'm going to have kids at this age. And none of that happens. That's the theme of our podcast. (laughs) Yes. And that's perfectly okay. You know, I think everything's meant to happen. You know, it's, it's Mektub. It's actually a necklace that I wear all the time. Uh, Shout out to Nominal. When I was in undergrad at U of M, I was actually pre-med for three years, believe it or not. You know, definitely went through the whole health route, you know, from our community and our family. That was just the expectation. That was the norm. And the whole idea of just making money and having that status sounded very appealing to me. However, I started to realize by the end of my junior year that 
one, I was getting C's in those upper science classes. Uh, so yeah, I was like, and I was not used to that. You know what I mean? Like, no matter how hard I studied or worked, did the extra study groups, you know, I still just wasn't performing well and it just wasn't clicking to me. And I think beyond that, it's just because I also lacked the passion and interest for it. However, I specifically took this course called Gender Violence in a Global Context with um, a professor, Nadine Neber. She's actually currently um, teaching at UIC, I believe now. Oh, wow. Mashallah. Yeah, but she was amazing. And that class just opened up my eyes to a lot of social justice issues around, you know, on a global context, specifically related to women. And with that, I transitioned to studying women's um, studies. And that was really eye-opening because I got to take all these different types of courses on how different communities and individuals are impacted based on their demographics, whether it's gender, race, sexuality, class. And that was something I was able to really practice on hand, especially as an activist on campus. I was doing Students for Justice in Palestine, and I was uh, leading a huge movement at the time for divestment. And that really carried my values of social justice through education. So when I graduated, I joined this AmeriCorps program called City Year. And City Year is where you um, work for a year in a school that's struggling. You um, have specific target groups that you work with. You have one target group based on attendance, one based on their uh, discipline, and one based on their academics. And so basically you have like the whole year to kind of mentor them and work with them. You work, uh, you do in-class support, you do out-of-class support, things like that. And I was specifically in Harper Woods, uh, which is more, um, it's like east of Detroit, was a very struggling school. It was the mo- it's the most struggling school I've worked in. And it just opened my eyes to the discrepancy in education based on your zip code and how re- the reality for some youth can be so different just like a few miles down. You know, I was privileged enough to go to Bloomfield Hills schools and, you know, get one of the best education systems in the world, to be honest, or in this country. And then going to see that as an adult was like, wow, this is not the case for everybody. You know what I mean? Even though there were so many brilliant minded kids, you know what I'm saying? But they just they just didn't have the resources provided to them that were equal to everybody else. You know what I mean? So that for me was a huge eye opener and just recognizing like I can still have those social justice values and still carry on my activism, but in a more local and direct impact rather than focusing on you know, at a college level, I was focusing on Palestine, but I was like, you know, now I can do something that I can directly impact, you know, firsthand right here locally in the schools. So yeah, I really just like untapped like my passion and for working with youth in the city. That's amazing. And I I think anyone who doesn't believe that there is a difference between school districts and zip codes never stepped foot in a zip code that they didn't want to be in. They always say the rich get richer. And it's true because, you know, the ones struggling are never given the resources and the opportunities they need. They have the ability, like you said, they have the ability, they have the knowledge. They're not given that extra push, that extra resources that they need in order to flourish. Yeah. And we're going to definitely talk about this in a bit because I think it's super important to discuss why they don't have the resources why there's like a school to prison pipeline like what is that like that we do talk about it often but how did that even arise and why does it even exist but I I think it's also interesting that like yeah you we really don't even think that even privilege also seeps into our school systems this is something that should have been untouched racism and all that stuff shouldn't be attached to the school system but it is 
you know, pretty prominent within our school systems. And I think when you really think about it, when we're young, what's the first thing we enter is school. And that's how you kind of start kind of being exposed to how unjust this country is and how the racism is, like I said, very prominent within these schools. Can we talk about like the demographics of your classroom? Because you do teach high school students 10th and 11th grade, right? So currently I'm teaching 10th and 11th grade. Um, The school is about 99% black. And that has been uh, the case for all the schools I've worked at so far. Um, I taught freshmen previously. And even when I was at Harper Woods my first year, I was working with a mix of ninth and 10th grade. But this year, yeah, I'm teaching 10th and 11th grade English. And then before we even just jump into all the stuff that you and I just talked about, Zaina, look, I want to also focus as on an educator. I think we don't give the teachers of our lives or anybody that we know like, enough credit for all the work that you honestly do. And there's a lot of work that you do and there's a lot of challenges you face. And if you want to talk about the challenges that you do face, because I feel like sometimes we have this disconnect. We assume that teachers don't really have it that hard. They just work a 9 to 3 p.m. job and then they get to go home and then they have their, their summers off. It's not that. You're basically responsible for all these kids. And not only that, not only are you responsible for them in that day, but you're also responsible for their future. You're the one that's molding them. But I feel Mm -hmm. like there's things that we often don't talk about, which is like sometimes you're in a disruptive environment. You're from Detroit. There's a lot that's going on. We're from Chicago. There's a lot of external factors that happen around in the city when it comes to gun violence and all this other stuff. And we don't talk about that often. There's also just the lack of stability. And then when it comes to even your time and just even having to accommodate to each student, you can't can't just like assume this whole class is just one student and just focus on them like that. There's unique students and unique needs. So if you want to just like even just touch upon any of those things when it comes to you and your specific school. Yeah, I think you make a lot of important points, especially when it comes to the environment of the classroom. That's really major and and a common pattern that you will see walking into, for example, a, a classroom that is black and brown or more um, more of a lower socioeconomic status versus if you're entering a school that is predominantly white and or a higher socioeconomic class, you automatically see a difference in the way students are acting in the classroom, whether it's positive or negative. But specifically, you know, people have been focusing more on how to be uh, trauma informed when it comes to educators, because so many of our students, as we know, one as people of color and people who just live in poverty, too, and are around that environment, you're constantly being exposed to trauma in different ways. Right. Whether, like you said, it could be gun violence, it could be violence in the home. Right. Whether it's verbal abuse or physical abuse, it could just be the lack of uh, financial resources you know, to, to not have three meals a day, uh, to not have, you know, enough clothing to wear to school or to be able to wash their uniform as often as others, things like that, or having, you know, the necessary transportation, things like of that sort. And so what you see in the classroom is their trauma is manifested in their behaviors, right? So even though they are acting out and they might be talking a certain way, talking when they're not supposed to, It's important that as an educator, you need to come in with the mindset that this is not about me. It's not personal. And it's not that they don't want to learn, but it's because they have so many things that are happening to them outside of school. You have what's called the hierarchy of needs, where basically it's important to recognize that you need to first, you know, notice that students need to be served of their most basic needs, which is food, shelter, 
you know, their most basic needs and, and necessities, you know, all the way up to the top of of Maslow, which is like self-awareness and realizing that their full potential and their capabilities and things of that sort. But it's like, how can we even focus on that top part when we're missing the most foundational principles, right? So if we don't have like that mindset as educators, you know, we're definitely doing a disservice and we're not thinking logically. Like you need to always, even if you're an educator or not, whatever job you're in, you need to have that mindset of understanding who your audience is, who your clientele is, who your students are, right, to serve to them specifically, or it's just not going to work. You know what I'm saying? So in this case, it's really important to understand that we can't get upset. We can't get angry. Not that we can't. I should take that back. You can get angry because I get angry and I do get upset. I do that a lot, honestly. But then I, I have to take a step back and remember this is why they're acting like this. I know Sally's acting like this right now because, you know, she just lost her brother last year. You know, I know, you know, Billy's acting like this right now. Um, you know, this situation happened. You know, the only way that can happen, too, is also building those relationships with students to understand where they're coming from and why they're acting a certain way. Even just like a give like a case example or a story. Currently, I've been really struggling with one of my hours of sophomores who just are always acting just off the chain. They're just constantly talking and laughing and talking over me, talking over other people. And it's just it's just a lot of chaos sometimes. We were all sophomores before. And I think I remember one of my friends, she's also an educator. And she's like, that's the worst class I teach our sophomores because <laughs> she's like, now they made it from up the totem pole. They're not freshmen anymore. So now they're just they have they're, this, yeah, courage. And yeah, yeah, they definitely come off a little uh, at that age. What I'm starting to notice with this age group is they want to not listen to adults. So if you tell them something, they're not going to want to do it. You know what I'm saying? That too. But yeah, so back to the story, like this hour I've really been struggling with. I've definitely had moments where I've I've broken down or kids have broken down or I've had to call home, things like that, or I might yell. But we, you know, had the opportunity where we've had like open circle discussions about our class and be like, what what's happening? What's going on? Like through restorative justice, for example, which is a form of being able to reconciliate and, and talk about what's happening in a certain situation so that we can come to a solution rather than like point to like the victim or point to the, you know, the abuser. But in this case, it allows us to, to all come together and talk about solutions and talk about what's really happening. It was really crazy because the whole room just opened up. Everyone was just crying and sharing what was going on. And it was very unexpected, very unexpected. And even the the own students in the classroom, they were so shocked and surprised to hear about this person and that person. And they were like, you know, this is why we need to uh, love each other more. Like, I never knew you were going through this and it's similar to what I'm going through. And this is why this person acts like this. Like, for example, the, the most hyper kid in the class that doesn't stop talking, he broke down the most. Wow. You know what I'm saying? And it just goes to show you, like, those acts of quote unquote, that some uninformed educators call, they call them kids with attitudes, right? Or, but they don't recognize again that they're acting that way for a reason. And it's our job as adults and as informed educators to recognize why they're acting a certain way. And what we need to do, our responsibility is to figure out how we can facilitate that and work with that. And so, you know, with that hour, for example, like since then, like we're always having real talks. We're trying to do more shout outs and giving more positive praises for each other to recognize one another and just like have more moments where we can laugh together and not 
you know, always be so stressed. Everyone has so much tension and, and anger holding up in them, especially in the winter. Yeah. So like everyone's like, you can just snap. It's hard. It's really hard when it's really cold. And y'all know Chicago and Detroit, like yeah. it's cold in the D. Okay. Like it's freezing. It's difficult. It's really difficult. And when you don't see the sun for months at a time, like you naturally become depressed. You naturally get more angry and tense, you know, and imagine for students who are living in poverty, you know what I mean? I can't, I can't imagine what that's like and what they're going through and then having to come to school and deal with other kids and deal with administrators, disciplining them and teachers who don't get them and don't understand them. You know what I mean? And they look at them a certain way. And I also have to recognize that I need to constantly check myself too. You know, of course I've made mistakes or I've said things that were wrong or done things that were wrong. And that, and part of my job is to keep reflecting and, and keep being open to like criticism, you know, from my own students, from parents, from administrators, from my co-teachers and, and being open to like listening. I love being how you take it beyond the textbook, because honestly, when I went to school and all my years of schooling from like literally like middle school to high school to college, unfortunately, I never had a teacher that really like just stuck with me that I was like, man, this teacher empowered me. He or she really like the values that they taught me, like I still hold to this day. And that's because they never went beyond the textbook. And every time we all walked into the classroom, you knew that the teacher held all the power and you're just somebody there just to learn. And you're basically have to please this teacher because you want the good grades and not pleasing in a way. I'm not trying to say like you have to bribe the teacher for good grades, but it's just like you knew your stance when it came to when you, you knew the hierarchy of power, like we were just talking about hierarchy needs, you knew the hierarchy your power when it came to classroom but I feel like in your classroom that kind of basically is just dissolved you're there showing yourself as like I'm on the same level as you guys I'm here to hear you guys out let's find a solution and I like that your solution isn't a punishment your solution is actually giving them a platform to speak. And I feel like when you give people a platform to speak, more people are bound to just open up and share their stories. I think a lot of us hold so many stories that we're just we can't wait to just like let them all out. But we don't have that not even just a platform, but a safe space. I think that's also important to create that safe space because you can basically let it all out on social media, but is it technically a safe space? Not all the time. But here you are in this classroom. You're basically teaching these kids that it's okay to open up. I'm here for you. I'm going to listen to you. And teaching is more than just basically allowing them just to read out of the textbook and just assigning them homework. And if they act out of line, you're going to get a detention because we're going to talk about that and how often specifically black students, how often they're punished, how often they're expelled or suspended. And that's how the whole school to prison pipeline begins. It starts in the classroom, but then it also starts with the educator and it depends upon the educator and how he or she values these students and how you view them and you view them as actual human beings and not somebody that you're an authoritative figure and you're going to tell them what to do and you're basically going to abuse your power. So I, I absolutely love that. But I also want to talk about the lack of resources and funding. Because yes, yeah, I was about to say that. Go ahead, you know, yeah. A lot of the A plus schools, the higher rated schools, those are the schools that are getting more funding at the end of the year, right? So definitely, yeah, schools that are struggling, they're not struggling because their students aren't getting it or they don't have the knowledge. They're struggling because they don't have the resources. And the more we push that back and you know, at the end of the year, they're getting that D rating, they're getting that F rating. And those are the schools that need the resources and the funding the most, but constantly are getting neglected and and kind of like pushed aside. And, you know, the A plus students, like I said, the rich get richer and the students that already have what they need 
or getting more on top of what they already have. How do you view that in your classroom, Bayan, when it comes to lack of resources? Because I, I want to see it from a teacher's perspective, because I know some of us roll our eyes when we get like that note from the teacher that yes. says, hey, can you please donate to my classroom? And then A you box look, of Kleenex is not going to kill you. Yeah. And then but like parents and some of them, like, oh, my God, why can't they afford it? It's because the teachers are not given this funding. Like you got to really think yeah. about it. These teachers are not receiving this funding from their school system, from their board of education, whatever. Yeah. And, and if you're not helping them, it has to come out of their own pockets. And we exactly. all know educators are not getting paid what they deserve to be paid. Yeah, I think it's no coincidence that the way schools are funded are based on um, taxpayers, right? So you get a certain amount of funding per pupil, aka like per student that attends a school. But even that level that you get per student is based on like how like the taxes from that, that zip code, right? And that's why I say it's not a coincidence that system was set up for a reason, you know, to keep to keep white students excelling, to keep those students going into the jobs, the higher up jobs, right? And it's no coincidence that the schools that are poor, that are predominantly black and brown, are the ones that are getting the least funding, right? And that's funneling them into wherever it might be uh, of a lower job, not as strong of a college, or potentially, like we said, getting funneled into prison, right, or on the streets. And so, yeah, it's definitely important to recognize that what's happening in the education system is very systemic. It's not, seg- it's not, you know, differentiated. It's not, you know, split up. It's, it's all part of a system that was made this way. It's very historical. And you always have to look at things from like a historical standpoint, too, and why it is the way it is today. Also remembering that at one point in history, schools were only for white people in this country. And it's important to think about everything from, you know, a global or um, a federal context, right? And not to look at things in a vacuum and, and things are happening for a reason the way they are in this day in society. Um, and even with Native Americans, when they were forced into into these white settler schools, they were forced to to forget their language. They were forced to change their clothes and forced to adopt and assimilate into white culture for a reason, to to forget who they are, to forget their culture and their history. And as we know, it was illegal uh, for black people in this country to read and write and to enter schools. And, And if they were caught doing that, they were killed for it, literally. And so it's no coincidence that you see over time, the past few hundred years that you know, you still see who's at the bottom and still who's at the top when it comes to the education system. What's interesting is like even with Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court case that desegregated schools, what's interesting is that actually at the time, if you do research into it, a lot of black schools like that were only black schools, they were actually very much excelling because they were in that environment of being around their own kind and being supported by their own kind. And because they understood each other, they knew how to teach to each other, they knew how to speak to each other and and how to love each other. Right. When they desegregated, it actually kind of made things worse because there were hundreds and thousands of black teachers that actually ended up losing their job and, and having to get forced to like integrate and join like these white schools. Right. And so if you look at like data and scores, it actually started to go down for black students after Brownberg's Board of Education, which is really crazy if you think about it. Even when it comes to like on an individual level, like you can talk to any teacher about this and we're always saying how much money we have to spend out of our own paycheck for things like 
Like I have to like beg my office just to give me paper or to give me a tissue box. You know what I'm saying? And she'll tell me like, you have to start telling your kids to bring tissue boxes or, you know what I mean? It's like, you even have <laughs> students who even lack their own resources at home. Yeah, even yeah. Like yeah. you like yeah, you can't afford to like fund your classroom, but at the same time, even these students are ba- barely even able to even, you know, fund their tuition. Cause you know I remember I mean? when I was in elementary, middle, even high school, the list that they would give us, you need this kind of binder and this kind of notebook and these kind of pencils. So you you know, it was just a list. And I remember my mom getting so frustrated because she would have to go from place to place and spend so much money on resources and, and things that we needed and half the things we didn't even use. Yeah. And what about if you have more than one sibling, more yeah, than one yeah. child? So there's like a lot of kids in one household. And if each, it adds you know, up, yeah, it, it does add up. Like, yeah, you can get your 10 cent notebooks at Walmart, but obviously like that's not going to last you the whole school yeah. year. You need a couple more items on that list. I do want to talk about like, the disadvantages that the black youth face. And like I said earlier, like early childhood education is vital in regards to like just later achievements in their life. Like when it comes to college, when it comes to their career, even social opportunities and economic stability and health, it, it starts from the schooling. It starts from the education that they receive at a very young age, but even just even feeling valued and feeling seen in the educational system when they are young. So it could continue on with them as they get older. But if they're already being disadvantaged at such a young age, and that's all they ever know, basically. And then there's some like statistics that show that like, black students basically suffer from scoring lower on tests and they're given lower grades and they're failing courses and dropping out of school. And again, this isn't because they're not smart. It's because, of course, external factors and then internal factors of what's going on in the school system and how the school system basically is just like another justice system that's just against them. It was made to be against them and to not allow them to thrive. And I feel like every time they try to reach that finish line, it just keeps getting pushed further and further away from them. So it's like they're almost there and then there goes the finish line. They're pushing it further away. And then also, I don't know about your guys' schools, but now like the, the high school my brother goes to, obviously, yeah, we went to a good high school. It's it's a privilege to be able to go to a good high school, but they're learning from laptops and iPads and stuff like that. Yeah. So imagine these schools are struggling that can't even afford maybe just like the common resources. How are they going to even afford to give each student an iPad to rent out for the entire year? So there you go. These black youths are not even exposed to the technological advances that other schools are already like surpassing. Like this is nothing to them to have an iPad, iPad in the classroom. So I feel like that's how most successful learners are born is basically being born into privilege, being born into a, an amazing school district in the right zip code and and the right skin tone sometimes too, obviously. I think that's like the major thing. So I want to talk about the school to prison pipeline. I think this is something that's like near and dear to your heart. And can I add, you know, also just important to like recognize, you know, it's not specifically just black youth, right? It's also other different communities that are also struggling in similar ways, but differently, of course, right? You see that, for example, um, with very high immigrant communities, Yes. Um, such as in our in Michigan, I can say, at least for us, um, you know, like in Dearborn, Hamtramck, uh, there are definitely areas where, um, especially when it's like more uh, refugees or newer immigrants, you see very similar issues when it comes to like lower funding, you know, struggling scores, especially having like that language barrier. But I do just, yeah, I wanted to note that you know, it's, it's different groups as well. Yeah, it, that's important because that's also because especially with like the whole refugee crisis. I mean, there's a lot of students mm-hmm. coming here and it's sad. We already have another episode on this, but even just the suicide rate among children is very high among refugee children and immigrants and stuff like that because they, they're trying to fit in. But how do you fit into a world that you don't even know that it's not even accepting you whatsoever? There's a language barrier, but there's also that barrier where you look different than everybody else and they're not welcoming of you either. So when it comes to even the school to prison pipeline, yeah, 
that could be against anybody also aside from black people but it's a of course, people that are not born into privilege, people that are born into immigrant communities or that had to emigrate from from immigrate from their country to here. But do you want to talk about that and what you've noticed when it comes to this phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, I can talk on two notes, one based on my own personal research that I did in grad school and also just my own like personal experience, like in the field, in the classroom. So for one, I did a lot of research um, with a classmate last year on um, specifically black girls being pushed out of school and, and their discipline rates in school. And what you see is even nationally about, th- you know, black girls are about three times more likely to be uh, suspended or disciplined uh, compared to like their white counterpart. And what we notice is that a lot of this comes from kind of like uh, misconceptions and, and stereotypes towards black girls specifically. Sorry, the teacher force is about 95 to 98% white. Wow. So that's a huge discrepancy. And just recognizing that, of course, not, you know, all white teachers, you know, are, are uncultured or uneducated. But at the same time, there's a good proportion that are uneducated on are not fully informed when it comes to, to black culture, right? Or whichever, you know, other culture that they're teaching. But specifically with like my research on black girls being pushed out, what we noticed is that a lot of educators were calling them, like I said, those those words such as attitude, loud, defiant, you know, things of that sort that are very racially coded. But in reality, like we said, a lot of this comes from not being heard um, or not being understood, right? So if they're being loud or talking, sometimes we forget that might be part of the culture is to talk in that tone, right? They don't, it's not, you might hear it a different way, but it didn't come out that way to them. You know what I'm saying? Like they might say it to their friend and their friend knows that's just how, how we speak, right? But when then when you say it to the teacher, the teacher takes it, oh my God, you're being disrespectful. Don't talk to me like that. You know what I'm saying? So that's even something for me, for example, that I've also like, you know, uh, learned over time too, is to recognize that talking in the classroom is actually a, a form of like learning, you know, for, for black and brown culture. Like we need to talk it out. We need to have conversations. It can't just be silent, sit up straight and listen to the teacher, right? We don't, we don't learn in that way. It doesn't work like that for us. We like to be loud. We like to laugh and sing and dance and you know what I mean? Um, and of course, you know, if it's all, you know, controlled and, you know, done in the right way, but at the same time, like, it's just, it's important to understand like the culture that you teach, um, so that we're not, you know, quick to like, point the finger and quick to call them these like uh, racially coded words. And so some of like the solutions we came up with for our research was uh, to come up with different ways to, you know, teach educators like through professional development on like cultural competency, also creating curriculum that's like more culturally relevant. So for example, like I said, like learning how students like interact, like that's important to take note of those like different types of activities you should be doing in class, like having them sit and do a worksheet or just do a reading, like in a very standard, you could even say like, uh, it's it's more like white education, right? Because the, te- the, the education that we learn in like school of ed and things like that, like we said, everything was founded like through white schools. And so of course the education models that we learn in school is catered to that. We don't get taught how to teach specifically to black, black and brown kids, right? And so that's why like I have to do a lot of my own independent research. Like I read a lot of books on how to specifically teach those populations, right? And try and use those skills and those teaching practices into the classroom, using things like hip hop pedagogies, 
using things like restorative justice where we can talk and have a conversation about things. Using music, for example, is huge. And having that in the background really helps stimulate kids and, and gets them motivated and engaged to learn. But unfortunately, we see, like I said, a lot of educators who are just not informed and that are not even taking like this. They're not even pushing themselves to learn, I feel like, is what I've been seeing is I think some of them are just very fed up and just tired and just doing their, their nine to five, quote unquote, job um, and just getting things done just to be there and to leave and get their paycheck. Um, and that shows, and it's obvious, like, who's doing that and who's not. And, like, just who's quick to, like, do office referrals and, and discipline students and kick out students. Kicking out students is such a big thing. And what's so crazy is even my students, my own students debate this with me. They'll be like, you know, Ms. Funas, you need to have a firmer hand in the class, and that's why this could act like this way or this hour acts like this because you're not giving enough consequences. And what they're not understanding is, like, because it's so ingrained in me to like be so against discipline because like I'm so just against it. I've done so much research on it. So I'm like, they don't see that like I'm trying to find alternative ways to to like go against it. You know what I'm saying? Um, so it's kind of interesting because even the, the own students have gotten like ingrained in that culture of discipline too. And then like specifically when it comes to girls too, um, I did a lot of this learning from her name is Monique Morris. She has a book called The Push Out of Black Girls in Schools. I believe that's the title of it. Um, and so she, like, I definitely recommend, like, people who are listening to look at her. She actually has two books. She has that book, and she also has a book that she recently put out. I just read. It's called Rhythm and Blues, um, Educating Black and Brown Girls. She does, like, a lot of work specifically on, like, the push out of black girls and, and brown girls, too, um, and how, like, educators are misinformed and, and how they're putting that into the girls and, and what we call, what she calls it for girls is she calls it a school to confinement pipeline, where basically girls are, you know, getting expelled, suspended, punished and disciplined in different ways, you know, than their white counterparts. And they're also getting led into like getting pushed out of school, literally, whether it might be uh, the juvenile system or might be like probation or, you know, whatever it might be. But yeah, like if you really do like get into research on this, like your, your mind would get blown by the cases and stories that you see. So for example, like what we see in the news, you know, we, how many times do we see a black man getting killed or getting abused in some, some way, uh, by police, right. That's like unjustified. And you see this, you know, stemming from, like we said, the classroom too. There are so many cases where we see a black girl getting thrown over, like on a cafeteria table by a security guard, for example, that's, that's happened. And you can look that up. You've seen a case where uh, a girl was thrown over, like while she was sitting at her desk because she refused to like give her phone up or something like I've that. I've seen that. Right. Yeah. It's just like so many cases that are so unjustified and they're just giving, you know, just complete like violence and, and unjustified like force um, when you're talking about a much older male adult that's big compared to a young black girl, right? It's just completely like unjustified and out of line and completely racist. Um, whereas finding like alternative ways to have a conversation, to have restorative justice circles. If you spe specifically if you want to learn more about restorative justice, I highly recommend Transformative Justice Teacher. Um, education by Maisha Wynn. And so she does like an excellent job of just teaching educators like the framework of using restorative justice as an alternative form of, of discipline or punishment as a way to bring students together 
educators together, staff together, whoever, you know, might be involved in the situation just to have like equal level conversations and come to a solution and really talk about like what's what's the foundation of the conflict, right? There are so many times and moments where it might be like a complete like misunderstanding, you know what I'm saying? And you just assume one thing and then when you actually sit and talk it out, you realize it was very minimal or you just, you completely misunderstood each other. Um, some other books I highly recommend that have really informed my practice as well for white folks who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too by Christopher Emden. He does an excellent job of teaching educators who teach in the hood about, you know, using hip hop pedagogies and, and practices into your classroom. For example, things like ciphers where like you bring students together to, to teach the teacher and to teach the students, right? Because who can best explain things to their peers and their own peers. You know exactly. what I'm saying? So, you know, using students' own knowledge and own skills uh, to be facilitators in the classroom. And that's something like I highly use in my class. And it's it's amazing because I'll have them go up to the front, facilitate the class. I'll be like, okay, ask this question next, you know, or I'll have them write on the board for us, right, or break it down. Or if I know a student who, you know, is really brilliant when it comes to like a certain text that we're reading, I'll have him be like, you know, I want you to facilitate the discussion today, you know, and they, they'll read something. It's crazy. Like we'll be reading like Voltaire, some like 1700 French translated text, which is very complicated and a lot of satire and very difficult. This one kid is so brilliant and like, he just gets it. He'll read it. He'll be like, do y'all get it? And they'll be like, no. He's like, so this is, he's like, so this is what happens. And he'll like put it in their terms. And like, they're like, oh, okay, we get it now. There are things that we can't do sometimes. So we have to put that into the hands of the students. We're there to facilitate the learning. You know what I'm saying? And find ways that work best for them. It's like basically passing down the mic from you, the educator, yeah. to the to students. Yeah. And implementing yeah. that at such a young age so that when they're growing up, they realize like, I need to also hold that mic. I need to also be right. able to speak for my peers and educate people about myself. And that's, I think it's so powerful, Ben, when you said that, like, as a teacher, you're also continuously learning. Your education doesn't stop. You also, because there's so many variables in a classroom. When it comes to an educator, I think this is why your job is so hard. There's just so many variables. There's no constant. You're always getting different students and each student has a different need. And then you have the lack of resources sometimes and all that stuff. There's just so much going on. And you like hit every point so well when it comes to the school to prison or school to confinement pipeline, because I feel like, I don't know, if I mentioned this, but it is a disturbing national trend. It's like, it's just basically you have students being funneled, funneled out of the educational system and into prison. And then there's a lot of reasons why for that. And you mentioned them. And the, I think the number one thing also we don't discuss a lot is zero tolerance. You, when you look at zero tolerance, you think, yes, this is good. I want, the yes, I want my child to go to a school that has zero tolerance, but do you really know what zero tolerance truly is and what it means and what the rule book or guidebook is? You, you know how they define a weapon? They don't really define it. It's very vague. So you can expel a student for bringing or for even just like making a fake gun with their fingers, like with their hand, like, you know how you can easily yeah. imitate a gun with your own hands. Some students can get expelled just for that or suspended for that. So it's like very vague terms that is just like, I think we discipline children way too much more than actually educating them. And I think there's an um, organization I'm pretty sure you're familiar with ACLU. And they said it so well, he's like, they're like, we should be educating these students rather than incarcerating them instead of putting them exactly. into the prison. Education, not incarceration. Ex yeah. You said it even better than me. <laughs> And then there's 
I, I also want to like bring up the fact that some kids, they're not bad. They're really not. There's, they're not. Some people have just they're learned. Not. It's a misconception. It's a misconception. As soon as you see the, some, like the media and the society makes you see like if, if a certain person's dressed this way and if they look like this, I mean, look at Trayvon Martin, all of a sudden wearing a hoodie becomes a criminal act. It means that's it. You're a horrible person. You deserve to be shot down. That person does deserve to, I don't even mention his name, deserves to defend himself. Like that's what society is molding us to think like these kids are bad some of these kids also have learning disabilities and as an educator if you're not really sitting down with these children and you're really like focusing on their needs which Bayan, you're doing an incredible job at because you open up my eyes at how teachers can truly sit down with their kids and put themselves on the same level you're instead of like providing them with like proper care such as counseling or educational services they are being isolated they are being punished they are being sent to detention and once a kid starts seeing like oh maybe i am a bad person they start acting out more it, i want to put quote unquote acting out you know what i mean yeah i was gonna say it's just like a psychological thing you know what i'm saying you tell any person no matter what race you are like what you like what to do they're gonna act the opposite way you know what i'm saying it's just it's just like a psychological thing that we do naturally as humans you know and and like i said just ways to combat that is that you know educators need to be constantly educating themselves like i said like with some of those texts i mentioned and really you know transferring and sharing the power with the students in the classroom because we don't realize like how much uh potential and talent we can untap in the classroom when we allow it to happen right rather than silencing them rather than punishing them and disciplining them having more patience to allow that talent to come out right um so whether it is like i said having them help facilitate and teach the class or what i what i commonly do and you really have to humble yourself and really be able to sit and listen is have private conversations with small groups or with one-on-one kids and be like you know, t- tell me like how I did today. Tell me how I did this week. Like, is there anything I did that was messed up or what could I have done better? And they'll tell you, like, you know, I think when you did this, you got out of line, you started yelling and you didn't need to, or maybe we could have done this activity in a different way, or we can do more stuff like this. And they'll tell you everything. You know That's what I'm incredible. saying? And how else can you better your practice than the people who are watching you each and every day, they can tell you. That's the other thing that Christopher Emden, um, you know, teaches teachers to to do too. Another text I uh, learn a lot from that I recommend is um, by Beverly Tatum. It's called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And she doesn't just focus on black because she does focus like on like as, as a whole, like different communities. But she really like develops like a strong case of recognizing like how different you know, communities of people in schools like are naturally drawn together and how they come together and how like educators um, need to like see kids for who they are and like who their culture is and how they need to like involve that into the classroom. That's so true because we did have a table for just the Arabs and then there was a table for just the black kids and then the table for the white. Um, maybe yeah. this could solve this issue if a teacher was more or the, the, just the school system was a little bit more transparent, allowed us to speak with one another, allowed us to get to know one another on a, on a deeper level. And I think that then there wouldn't be so much segregation when it comes to the lunchroom. Like you could physically see the segregation happening because we're not having open communication in classrooms. It's majority of the time is the teacher talking and everything. And this is not all all teachers. There are some incredible teachers just like you, Bayan, who really take it a step further. And you were going to say something, Zayn. Well, I wanted to bring up the fact that like 
you know, people don't realize the impact detention and expulsion has on students. And when they're acting out, there's a reason behind it. I think you mentioned this. There's a reason they're acting out. If they're, you know, the class clown, they just want attention because maybe they're getting neglected at home. There's always these underlining reasons. Exactly. And when you're giving them detention, you're getting them used to that segregation. And then when you expel them, you're kind of pushing them back. They're missing actual education they're missing classwork they're missing all this stuff and I think it I mean it pushes them behind but also we have to realize a lot of these kids don't have the resources they need a lot of them depend on uh, free lunch at schools they depend on all those resources so when you're kicking them out of the school they're missing breakfast and they're missing lunch and they're missing they're missing the essential things they need in order to push them further in life and it's it's so sad and I you know one of my when I was in middle school when I was in eighth grade the school that I went to had detention during school hours so they would put all the bad the quote-unquote bad kids in a trailer and they would get yeah and they would get delivered their classwork and they would have to spend those seven hours of of school in that trailer just silently working on this tell me that doesn't replicate a jail cell right there it's yeah it's identical and it, it honestly even as an eighth grader I was like what the hell is this? Like, it's insane. Let's talk about the police presence in classrooms and in school systems, too. In this, I mean, just in schools in general. I think right there, you're also exposing kids to just feeling like it's normal to have a police officer, a resource officer being able to manhandle you. That's not OK. So when you do grow up, you think it's you you become used to just being targeted by these mm-hmm. police officers yeah. and stuff like that. There's especially, when you know, the news article or even the news snippet that I seen, like you said, that girl being just taken out of her desk and slammed down the floor what is that that's yeah. not okay but like that like it's normal for something so minuscule you're being treated like a criminal so it's normalizing this your behavior this mindset like you said psychologically like you're making them these students believe that they are already a criminal at such a tender age that yeah. they're so impressionable and i think this may be a whole nother conversation but i don't think it's a bad idea to have a resource officer on campus but we have to sit down with the resource officer and and understand their intentions if they're there to protect the students great let's do it but if they're there to see students as uh enemies and see them as already suspects then something needs to change there's a lot of research that shows when um school resource officers also known as sros when they involve them in the school community and in staff meetings and, and actually get to know the students it shows that they actually can have a lot of positive benefits right but when they're those sros that just show up do their job um, and there's like a disconnect, um, there's obviously more chance for, for harm and for, for punishment on the students in ways that are unjustified. Also, the fact of the matter is, like we said, when we keep mentioning school to prison pipeline, like these students, when they're acting out, quote unquote, acting out, and you know what I mean? A detention becomes a suspension, a suspension becomes an expulsion, and then an expulsion ends up being either they send them to an alternative school, which, by the way, are those are not great schools either. They, they even lack more resources. Oh, yeah. They completely are disconnected from the students, and it, it's just it's horrible. But let's just say they skip that alternative school, then they end up in the juvenile. Most of the, t- most of the time, they can't even enroll in a school. They have to wait till like the next school year to start. I've seen that happen a lot of times. You know, it's also like we said, you can't look at things like in a vacuum. You always have to remember why things are happening a certain way. And so when it comes to like punishment in schools, we need to like remember that that's a reflection of our American society. And like we said, how they criminalize black and brown people in this country um, and how the incarceration system works in this country. It's just another mirror reflection of, of how it works in these schools, right? Like with zero tolerance policies that's forcing them to 
one way or the highway, right? There's no, you can't pick or choose like how you might act. There's no in between. There's no extension of the community and bringing them into into the school system sometimes. And yeah, you really just see like how it's just a, not only a reflection, but it's just a continuation. And like being able to, when you expel, expel them or suspend them, they're having more time outside of school and more opportunity to be doing things outside or doing things that are unmonitored. You know, their parents are going to be at work the majority of the time. They're not going to be able to monitor what they're doing at home or they, you know, have more of a chance to do things on the street. You know, it's just, it's just a reality. Not always, of course, we're not going to generalize, but that is more likely to happen. And, um, you know, data even shows that the majority of school conflicts and fights happen uh, right after dismissal, right? And so that's why they encourage kids to attend extra, extracurricular activities because they can help decrease those like number of conflicts and get them more involved in school activities and uh, build those social emotional skills. But you can see automatically, just like as soon as they're out of school, there's that potential like for conflict. 100%. Yeah. And even if when, like I said, when they even enter like this whole juvenile system, like detention system and everything like that, do you think these kids even are lawyered up to be able to protect, protect themselves in courts and stuff like that? If they lack the basic resources that they need to even just be in school and to just make it by in school and even have lunches and stuff like that, what makes you think that they can even defend themselves with a lawyer when they end up in this um, just so-called justice system? And I think that's also something that we need to talk about because I even read the statistics said like 80% of them don't have lawyers. Imagine 80% yeah. of these kids that could have wrongly been accused of something, could have been, you know, given just such a harsh punishment for something so small and they end up in juvenile and then they don't even have lawyers to defend them. What do you expect them? They're going to be stuck in this system and they're just going to keep going forward with the motion. And like you said, they don't even get re-entry into their school sometimes. They have to wait a long time if even that. Which even pushes them or they further have to go back. completely out of their district. And that makes it nearly impossible for kids who don't have the transportation or whatever it might be. And it's like, and as we know, people who don't have the funds get like, have to get a public defender, unless we're real, those, those are people too. And they're completely overloaded with cases and files. And there's so many like cases to keep up with in the prison system, with the juvenile system. So it's like, how can you expect to win a case or even have a, like a solid case when they have like a hundred cases, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Even, um, there's that show how to get away with murder. And it was Annalise Keating. She kind of touched upon that when she became, she kind of lost her job. So then she became a public defender and it showed that side of like how overbooked they are and how much like they have to take on. It's a lot. So it's hard to get your case heard. So it's so unfortunate for these kids, but now taking it back for, with you, Bayan, like what's your vision as an educator, especially having to deal with all these things that are like, all these things are stacked against these students of color or of immigrant background or just no privilege at all like what's your vision for them how are how are you trying to kind of change their life path and help them to obviously just stay on the right path of getting an education becoming having a career and all that good stuff well what I can say is I always tell myself at least what I can do is control what's happening in my classroom you know even though it's it's a much bigger system that we're battling with I always tell myself well you know what at least let me focus on what I can do in my classroom and I, cause I'm impacting almost 200 students a day. You know what I mean? And multiply that every year, you know, I'm seeing like over a thousand students at this point, you know, which can go a long way. There can always be that one person that becomes the next Malcolm X, you know, you never know who you impact. And so for me, I really try to focus on bringing, um, 
their, you know, their true history into the classroom and just remembering like their roots, where they come from, who they are, how it, how important it is to know your history and your story um, and empowering who they are as people, especially when we have those moments in the year where we get really low. Like I said, during the winter time, for example, we get very exhausted. We're half in the year. We're cold. We're tired. All of that. And I really have to push myself beyond my own exhaustion and remember like I have my own duty to to motivate them and inspire them and reminding them like how great they are and how much potential they have and telling reminding them that unfortunately like this is what everyone's expecting they're expecting you to fail that's what they are expecting especially from Detroit everyone thinks like y'all can't make it so what are you going to do to to counter that stereotype what are you going to do to prove everybody wrong especially when we have that mentality in our head sometimes that pushes us to go even further because we want to prove people wrong you know that competitive kind of like mentality especially when it comes to teenagers and to opening up like that space for students is so huge for me to to have like that free discussion to have like those free times where we can do shout outs and celebrations and open like with poetry or rap whatever it might be freestyling where we can just like express who we are our natural you know creative selves in a way that's like fun, unfiltered, you know, judge free, um, so that we can still like allow students' personalities to be into the classroom and feel like they're welcome as as people and as human beings, and you know, seen as someone like who is cared about. You know what I mean? Beyond like, let's learn. Like, I want them to remember like I, I care about you as a person, and I want you to to express yourself and to just be you at the end of the day, um, because when they're able to like build those social emotional skills, their data is actually like a lot higher in, in, you know, in their testing, for example, you know, when you can build that positive classroom environment, they're more willing to learn. They're more willing to engage. There's so much data that shows when they have a teacher who either looks like them or who is like another person of color, the data is actually crazy when it comes to that. They are way more likely to succeed. It's like crazy. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's like, a huge discrepancy between, you know, having a teacher that doesn't relate to them or like a white, white teacher versus a black teacher or someone who actually cares about them. They're just like way more likely to succeed. Can I mention one thing? You just, uh, I just thought of this. I know initially I said there was not one teacher that impacted me because again, majority of my teachers were white women or white men. And it was really hard to relate to them. And they were basically black and white, read from the textbook, that's it. There was one teacher that stuck out to me, and her name is Shada, and she was Middle Eastern. She was Palestinian. She taught me my English class. And that was the one class I truly, truly look forward to going to because I felt seen, I felt heard, she acknowledged me, and she pronounced my name correctly. And I think even just <laughs> yeah. that, just even that, I felt like, yes, I love this classroom because she doesn't make me feel different. She doesn't make me feel left out. She doesn't make me feel like I'm lacking in anything. And I learned so much like I was always acing everything of hers like I was always a good student I always pushed against everything but like I was always a good student but in her classes where I truly thrived and I felt seen and heard and I absolutely enjoy so shout out to my English teacher Shada <laughs> who I'm still friends with because I love her to death and she's an wow. incredible teacher and she also taught one of my other sisters she's just she's just somebody that the whole Arab body of like the school system or that, that specific school they really enjoyed being in her class she, she was incredible yeah but I mean how do we expect to 
provide those students, those types of teachers, yeah. if we're constantly pushing those underprivileged students out of school? Obviously, they can't become educators themselves because they're not getting the education they need to move on. And something that I think clicked right now is there's no black and white guideline to what a classroom should be, right? I know teachers that do lesson plans in the summer, they plan for the year before, but every classroom you step into has a different set of students, right? And those students have different needs. So it's kind of like adapting your lesson plan to what's going to work for them. You always have to adapt. And I don't think they teach that in school. And like in college classes, they don't teach you. They said, like, these are the lesson plans. This is what you do. Um, and that's really it. And then they send the, the teachers off to yeah. teach. And it's, yeah. it's disappointing because I never had that experience. I never had, you know, a class where I felt completely seen and completely, you know, and, and I wish I could like go back 10 years from like, I wish I was 16 right now and you could be my teacher because I feel like it really could make an impact. Or even for us to be able to speak up. But again, we weren't empowered in our no, classrooms no. to be able to speak up. like, hey, you know, I don't like how you're teaching this or I don't feel seen or I don't feel heard. Because like I once gave a presentation on Palestine and it was a white teacher and I have never felt like just such disappointment from a teacher like he just didn't even acknowledge me being Palestinian the presentation that I gave or anything like it was just like whatever here's your grade that's it like there was just no connection no deeper connection other than just like assigning the the coursework and then then that's it basically and that's why I felt like I wasn't seen but I want to mention Bayan you started a poetry club for the Detroit youth so you did something else also for them to keep them busy to to not even keep them busy I don't even like using that but just to basically push their boundaries and show them like this is what you're capable of like I want to show you what you're capable of can we talk about that poetry club real quick yeah, so I um, I do um, a lot of youth poetry work in the city too, besides being my own poet and doing my own shows. So I started back in 2016. I had created a poetry club at Jalen Rose High School when I was teaching there. And I kind of carried that through even to like the school I'm at now. I had started a poetry club at this school too, which kind of like speaks for itself that every school I go to, I have to create one. You know what I'm <laughs> yeah. saying? That already shows you the, like, the lack of the creative arts unfortunately, but it's also been a blessing in disguise to be able to create that space and, you know, seeing students who come like on a regular consistent basis to have a space where they can, you know, share their, their talent and their skill. And there a lot of the students like have never even done it before. It's their first time, but you know, they're willing to come and try something new and, and just like build like a new community of, of young poets together. And it's really dope. Like in Detroit, like there's a a company or a nonprofit I work for called Inside Out Literary Arts. Specifically under that, they have what's called Citywide Poets, which is uh, who I work for. I'm a, a writer in residence for them. And basically, like, they focus on a lot of, like, youth poetry programming, after-school programming. Even today, what we had, I was there earlier at the Museum of Contemporary Art. It was, like, a youth poetry workshop, an open mic. Um, and they always bring, like, a guest artist that, like, comes from out of state most of the time, too, actually. Um, and they'll facilitate the workshop and then they have a, a whole team open mic. So it's just like really dope to see like in the city how much we're trying to like cultivate that youth poetry community so that they can find, you know, alternative forms of expression while also keeping them out of potential conflict or trouble. You know what I'm saying? And also teaching them how to build like healthy relationships with other young teens and being able to teach them like how to express like their own stories and, and how to, you know, share and narrate their stories from their community and, and from their own, um, you know, personal lives too. So 
yeah, it's been like a really dope experience. It, it definitely is what gives me energy. It's what gives me spirit. And right now what I'm looking forward to most is um, we're having our Black History program at the end of the month. And uh, I've been helping the kids choreograph a group poem. And so we've been like rehearsing every day for that. And it's dope. It's real fire. And it, it gives me energy. So let's talk about your poetry, too, because you're also a poet yourself and you did write your own book and everything. I want to get into that. Like, where did your talent or where did you find the need to start writing poems from? Because I feel like for me, I feel like poems and poetry comes from pain, comes from experiences, comes from hardships, from things that you've lived through in life. So where did your passion for, for poetry come from? So for me, it actually comes from books. Like I've always just been a huge bookworm, you know, I know as you are too. (laughs) Yes. So I just, ever since I learned how to read, uh, I never just stopped putting books down. I would always go to the library and just get stacks of books. And uh, whenever the Harry Potters came out, I was on it right away, reading it all night till I was done. The good old days. Yes. And even till this day, like I'm I'm very blessed and grateful that I've like continued that habit because it's such an important like habit to, to keep as an adult too, that I always try to communicate with, with my students is, you know, you don't realize like how much knowledge you can get from books that you can never get in schools or from other people, even like fiction novels, like And I love fiction novels like you get so much out of that because it teaches you language and words and and teaches you how to narrate stories. And that that as well as hip hop, you know, I really got into hip hop more into college and seeing like how they were able to like narrate like social justice or narrate their stories through like rap and rhythm. That kind of showed me um, like combining those two elements, being able to like narrate my stories and and what my history, my culture or what I'm even just experiencing or what I'm seeing um, and putting that into like poetry and rhythm. Specifically, someone who inspired me when I was in college, I was watching some Def Jam poetry and there was a Palestinian woman, her name was Suhaid Hamad. Highly recommend checking her out if you have never heard of her. But it was the first time in my life where I actually saw a woman who was narrating stories that I could personally relate to. She specifically had a poem on uh, 9-11 and how she was kind of like fearing the safety for her brothers after it. You know, as we know, there are many uh, Muslim men or men who are perceived to be Muslim that have been like incarcerated, you know, because of it. And so that was like my first time I really got to be exposed to someone who was talking about something that I could relate to. And I felt in ways that really just touched my heart and opened my eyes. And I literally told myself, man, I'm going to do that one day. I want to be her. You Like you never know what you can like speak into existence. You know what I mean? Like you really If you believe it, you can make it happen. And so I got into it when I graduated. I, when I was first working at Harper Woods, I was helping the students rehearse for their poetry night. And I just remember sitting there and looking at them and witnessing them sharing like their most vulnerable stories and being like, dang, like these kids are only 14, 15, 16. Like if they have the confidence to do it, then what am I sitting here for? Like I can do it too. You know what I mean? And so it was because of them, honestly, that I started like pushing myself to, you know, I co-founded some poetry collectives and currently I'm uh, co-founded a group called Wisdom and we're the only women's poetry collective in Michigan. We might honestly be the only women's poetry collective in the country because like we've tried to research and haven't found any others. Wow. We, we've seen one that's a co-ed one, but not like all women's one. But regardless, like we're definitely making history, you know, as four of us women, we're very diverse, different backgrounds, different stories to tell. And we just have different poetry styles, too, which is really cool. And so, yeah, it's just like a beautiful way to come together as women, as to as a support system, 
as a you know way to just be creative and share our stories and learn from one another and critique one another in open and healthy ways. So yeah, poetry is definitely like a way of healing for me. And whenever I say a certain poem, whatever it might be about, it's just another way for, for me to like heal again from whatever it is that I wrote about. You know what I mean? What pushed you to finally write your own book and to also self-publish it? Because, and if you want to talk about the title and where people can find it, I know you mentioned it yeah. earlier, but just again, because it's such a powerful book, but it's also, again, I feel like poetry, you write from a very vulnerable space. Like it's really hard. So it's kind of like, yeah, you're really opening up and you're being really transparent. So I think that's why I really love and value poems and even just artists who are po poets, because I think it's just like, you're basically sharing your story and letting all the walls down when you are writing. Yeah, so my poetry book is called Diary of a Daughter in Diaspora, and essentially it's just a collection of my poems I've written over the past few years, um, and you'll see it's a wide collection of different topics, and I purposefully did that, and I purposely didn't have an order or chapters either because I wanted to show people this is a, a reflection of like the human mind and like just like human experiences. We go through all different types of things, and it's not categorized. Like it, We don't experience things in life. In, in genres or in chapters, like it just happens and it is what it is. You know, one day I'm freaking mad at this person and I'm angry about that. I'm writing this like crazy poem about them. The next day I'm like talking about how much I love this person. You know what I'm saying? And then the next day I'm talking about how angry I am about Trump and what he's doing to us. So that's why it's all jumbled up because I just want people to sh like see like this is a reflection of who I am and what I go through. And even the title itself, like being a daughter in diaspora, that is a reflection of of who I am being a first generation American, you know, my parents immigrated from Algeria. And so this is like, it's, it's really, if you think about it, like a big deal to be like a first generation, even second generation, like you're really starting history, like for your, for your bloodline, you know what I'm saying? Being in a completely different land, completely different culture. And it's crazy. Like my mom always tells me like how scared she is of us, you know, losing our culture and losing our religion and, and language and all of that. And so for me, it's, it was about like showing the different poles of, of cultures, you know, being American, being Algerian, being Muslim, being Arab, being North African, all these different mixes, being an educator, right? Being someone who's been in love before, being heartbroken before, you know, whatever it could be, just talking about all the different elements that I experienced. And also, most importantly, speaking my own truth and my own story, regardless of what other people think, but also being able to narrate our story firsthand because growing up, like I said, I've you know, always been so into books. I never got to see a woman like me, you know, bringing out books like this or seeing my someone like me with the face on the cover. And that's why I was so intentional with my cover. If you haven't seen it yet, it's pretty much a painting of me you know, in, in a headscarf, but I also bring in the different elements of American Algerian. I have like, you know, the more North African type jewelry earrings. And then I also have black shades. So it kind of like represents these different elements. The color is, you know, emerald to represent like royalty too. I love, I love the cover. I really did. Cause I you. think that's what stuck out to me yeah. because it is something I was like, Oh wow. A girl wearing a turban. She looks like this. This is her skin color. Exactly. Like, and the everything. And, and honestly, even the emerald green, that really, really stuck out to me. Cause I was like, damn, this looks like royalty right here. Like, what is this? Exactly. I loved it. People don't realize like how important like imagery is, you know what I'm saying? When it comes to representation. Yeah. And so that's why that was super important to me, uh, to have like, you know, my face on the cover so that, you know, other girls can see like, wow, that's me on the cover. That's me in these poems. And I can relate to this. And it's, it was amazing to see, like, I would say about 98, 99% of the comments have been positive praise. 
of course, there's always that 1% that has things to say. You can't make everybody happy. We no, realize exactly. that. But like from the people who have responded to me, like it's amazing to hear people say like, wow, like even though I'm a different culture than you, like I still relate to what you're saying or, you know, I can see myself in this poem or even, you know, if they don't relate, like just I feel this, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, and I appreciate you just like, like you said, like being open and being honest you know, about who you are and being able to like learn from a woman like me if they've never met someone like me before. That was my purpose. I think it's truly inspirational that you're affecting people both inside the classroom and outside the classroom. Your, your impact on your students and those who pick up your poetry book, I think is going to be everlasting. And the lessons you teach are going to be passed on. I mean, even though you said you only see 200 students a day, that's a lot. And that impact that they're going to carry and those lessons that you're teaching them, they're going to pass to their friends and their their children one day. And I think it's going to be a, a positive domino effect. Yeah, I can't. I, I think you're doing incredible things, Bayan, honestly. And I feel like it's just like in anything, I think we connect more when we can relate to one another's struggles. When we share one another's struggles, I feel like that's the way that I deeply connect to people. I want to know what, what was the hardest thing you've ever faced? What was the worst hardship you've ever had to face? What was the one thing that made you grow into the person that you are today? And I think that's what you're teaching these young kids to keep growing, to keep pushing their boundaries, to realize what they're capable of, even though society tells them you're not capable of anything. And I think it's so powerful to just instill the empowerment within the hearts of all these kids. But I know like Dearborn Girl said this, like you have to be self-empowered yourself. So it's nice to see somebody like you, an educator, you're very comfortable in your own skin, Bayan, and you're proud of where you come from. You're proud of your roots and you're proud of the kids that you teach. And just even being an educator in general, I love when I see a teacher become a teacher because that's her passion. Because you one and you basically went and you've seen this with your own eyes and you've seen the lack of I guess resources and the lack of everything and how does the odds were stacked against these students and just people of color in general that you wanted to make a change and I think it's super important and that's what I that's why I think it's really important to go after your passions and your true life's purpose because you really thrive in that you're making an impact on these kids because this is your life purpose this is what you were meant to be just to be somebody as a healing source for others is there anything you want to leave off with Bayan, in regards to just being an educator overall and something that people maybe just you know I guess take teachers for granted and I feel like sometimes we do as a society even just when it comes to even the pay that in itself just shows how much we don't appreciate educators in um in this country yeah I definitely want to say is you know it's not all pretty and you know, hopeful. And it's not like that all the time. Like in reality, I will tell you, I go through a roller coaster each and every day. You know, I'm literally fighting a battle each and every day. I have moments where I really will sit there and be like, I don't know if I want to continue doing this because it's so difficult because it's so taxing mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, you know, it's so difficult when you're fighting a system, you're dealing with students who bring in all this trauma into the classroom. And then because you also get so connected to the students and then it impacts you and then you get frustrated and wondering, why is this kid ignoring me? Why are they treating me like this? Even though it has nothing to do with you, you know what I'm saying? And then you get hurt. It's very difficult and you really have to find ways with whatever. And I think whatever people are passionate about, they're going to go through that. Like they're going to get so into what they're doing, but we have to keep remembering one, what our purpose is, what our vision is, but also remembering how we can rest when we need to rest and how we can step back when we need to step back. Like as, as passionate as we can be about what we're doing, we have to remember like the longevity of what we're trying to do. And there's no way you can continue doing what you're doing if you're putting a hundred percent every single day. 
all day. You know what I'm saying? Like we need to step back sometimes. And that's something I'm trying to do more of is like, okay, I need to, I need to rest more. Or I need to step back or I need to not do this activity and say no to this. You know what I mean? Burnout is real. Burnout really it's is very real. real. Yeah. Very real. Yeah. I've been very exhausted lately. <laughs> <laughs> like I normally never take naps, but at this point it's like, by the time I come home, like I crash, like I can't even keep my eyes open. Yeah. And it's like, you can't pour from an empty cup and that sounds cliche, but it's honestly really true. And you get so frustrated. So it's like you, you don't want to be frustrated with the thing that you love most. So I think exactly. we really need to take care of our, ourselves. I feel like we're in a generation where we're not really taking care of ourselves. We'll preach self-care, but we've Always mentioned this before, <laughs> but there's a difference between Instagram self-care and really, really yes. taking care yes. of yourself. Yes. Like don't just put that, slap that bandaid on it. And then you're going to have to rip off that bandaid again and, or that bandaid is going to fall off and the problem is exactly. still there. You have to really heal what what's hurting and what's bothering you. And, and sometimes self-care means facing your challenges so that yeah. it's not going to be a pretty self-care like you know what I mean which is okay you could still take good self-care days where you're getting a facial but really really like don't just put off this thing that's also causing you to continuously ask for self-care days so I think that's important so as an edge look for you as an educator I'm pretty sure you guys are really burnt out at oh, times yeah, I can imagine you're you're responsible for all these kids you know what I mean I know moms that can't like it's too too much to even handle two kids at once and motherhood is really really hard and I don't want to compare motherhood to just an educator but at the same time you are overseeing these kids and it's a lot it really is it's pretty stressful you might not take them home but you take other work home with you yeah that's true and yeah. you're taking their struggles home with you i'm sure that you go home at night and you're thinking of your kids yeah. once you put your head on that pillow as well like literally yeah so i i give you honestly all the props in the world because what yeah, you're props. doing is incredible <laughs> and props to you guys for just you know providing a platform and a space for for women to come and share their stories and share it with other women and other people who are not women, but you know what I mean? And just, you know, create that platform. So shout out to y'all. And Thank I appreciate y'all having me. And, you know, again, if you know, people want to follow me, you can check me on Instagram, um, at that Algerian, which will link for sure, because I think your page, I, I really love it. And I, it's nice to see a woman's journey. And it's nice what you're sharing with us, especially what you're doing with Wisdom Poets. I think that's awesome, that group Wisdom. It's, it's really incredible what you guys are doing, because you guys are also holding open dialogue and you're helping the youth. It's not just a poetry club. It, there's just so there's much more than that. It's there's a lot of extensions to it. So it's incredible what you're doing. And the whole purpose of us creating this podcast is to share stories of women, because I want to highlight the good that comes out of our community as well. And this is one of them. Sometimes it's hard. We share a lot of heavy stories, but even just seeing like a teacher like you, an educator like you doing so much for the community, we want to be able to highlight yeah. that as well. So thank you so much, Bayan. Honestly, we appreciate you so me. much more. I love you. I've always been a fangirl since the day I met thank you, you and crossed paths with you because it says a lot when somebody, like I always say, continues to hold open the door of success behind them yeah. because it really meant a lot to me just for you to even just jump on a call with me and be like, yeah, this is how you do it A to Z to it's publish amazing. a book. It really is amazing. I got lazy. I didn't do it, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> I still got the help. So thank you girls hey. so much for that. Love you. Seriously. Thank you yeah, so I'm much. I'm definitely, like I said, like so inspired by the podcast too. Like y'all blew up out of nowhere. <laughs> and I always look at the page and I'm like trying to learn from my own page, to be honest. I'm like, what do I need to do differently? <laughs> you know what? I learned to not even judge your success through Instagram because I feel like there's just so much stacked against us when it comes to Instagram because That's I feel true. like outside of Instagram we're even more successful and when I say successful I don't mean by numbers and stuff like that but just girls coming to us telling us like oh my god I love your podcast and actual interaction I went through this or recently we had a domestic violence episode and we actually had girls like I have girls calling me and texting me like I think that defines success and I, I, I want to take definitely. our story 
boundaries and you as an educator, even just outside of social media, because I hate how social media kind of makes you believe like this person's successful, this person's not. You, I don't know how many followers you have, Bayan, but girl, you have so many students yeah. who look up to you. And I yeah. think that's girl. success. That's what matters. That's what matters. That's success. I'm so over Instagram, even though we're on it every day, but I'm so over <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> Love you, girl. Thank you so much again All for this right. conversation. Thank you. Bye, Bye guys. I think it's really interesting how she's taking the role of teacher and kind of extending it beyond. You know, she's not someone who's just following lesson plans and, and going by the book. She's adapting her teaching to what her students would benefit from the most. And I think that's something that a lot of teachers don't do. Yeah, I like how you said the word adapting. Every student has a unique need and you can't, because like back in the day, I read somewhere where they used to teach in the middle of the class. And what does that mean is like, they take the average of the scores of these students and where they are on whatever the hierarchy, I guess, of like how good they are, how they're how well they're scoring. They just, just teach in the middle of that class. Let's say majority of that class scores a B average. So they teach, I guess, in that way or whatever and however needs they are. But it's like, you can't do that because what about the outliers what about no. the students are really exceeding and the students are really struggling it's like not you're fair, leaving yeah. them out but what i love about bayan is she really focuses on each student and that's something that i know my own sister does too she really yeah. does she really like i think it's incredible the new line of i guess new generation of teachers and how they're also including mental health into their system where they're addressing the needs of these students and sometimes they're struggling and sometimes you can't just look at your students the person that's in your class they also have a role to play outside of your classroom so you got to also see why they're struggling why they're going through this why are they acting out there's something that's going on outside of your classroom that's such a great point i think i mean the same way when we go to work and we're having a bad day there is there's underlining reasons why we feel bad why we're having just a terrible time and, and can't concentrate on our work we have to remember that students are going through the same thing. A lot of them are having trouble at home. It could be just friends that are, you know, something happened with their friend. There are so many underlining factors. And as a teacher, even as a parent, as a, a sibling, we need to be able to recognize those and say, like, okay, I know you're acting out. I know you have an attitude. I know you're telling jokes in the middle of my lesson plan. Why? Why are you choosing to do to step out of your boundaries and act up? There has to be a reason why. And yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that like bad kids, quote unquote, have a reason why they're acting out. I feel like we always looked at the class clown as just, oh, he's so funny. He's doing this. He's always a troublemaker or she's always a troublemaker or whatever. But I think there's this more going on with the student and yeah. why they are the way they are. And I think as a professional, as a teacher, as an educator, like, I guess it's, it, you're almost kind of responsible for that and understanding that your child's, the child's needs. So I got to give it to educators. No, I to wanted teachers. to say Man. like they do a lot. It's like I said, it's not just following a lesson plan anymore. No. It's you're really there and you're taking home the stress that your students have placed on you. And when they open up to you, you're also taking home that burden as well, that, that those feelings, those heavy feelings as well. So a teacher's job really doesn't end after the bell rings. No, it really doesn't. And I think in future episodes, we're going to talk about like bullying and like mm -hmm. how some students like they're facing all this stuff and it's almost like kind of not up to the teacher but that there's like this responsibility that sometimes a teacher feels like she or he or she has to kind of like almost distinguish if something's going on with the student and if it kind of reaches to the point of you know being self-harming or whatever yes. that's also something a teacher has to like almost kind of acknowledge and notice the red flags and everything so man a lot of teachers there's a lot on their plate and yeah. I think as parents as people or guardians like we have to work well work with the teachers very closely and 
understand what they're going through and just being a, a source of support instead of being yes. that parent that comes and yells at the teacher and says, why did you discipline my kid? Do you know what I mean? Everything happens for good reason. Um, of course, like with precaution, you want to make sure that this teacher is really oh, disciplining your kid for a good reason. Has the best reason. interest at heart. Has the best exactly, interest at yeah. heart. But I really hope you guys enjoy this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, as always, please, you guys review us. Like you guys have been doing so amazing with Thank your Thank you reviews. so much. Seriously. Like, I just get surprised when I see uh, another one pop up. I'm like, I didn't even, I didn't even push people or force people to write us a review and here's a here's they a really like us yeah, that was done voluntarily on their own i was like thank you thank you so much it really means a lot that's what pushes us to continue with these episodes but that's also what pushes us up on like the apple podcast app mm-hmm. or any of these apps for other people to find us and yes. i think a lot of our community is really hungry for these type of conversations to be had so i really hope that other people outside of our community because obviously we can't reach every single person in the entire world but there's a way for that is by just reviewing us giving us a review shouting us out whatever it is you want to do reposting us and that's how other people can find us so thank you from the bottom of our hearts for all of this because there is a point where Zena, you and i were struggling sometimes to find guests this is when yeah. we first began now it's like alhamdulillah alhamdulillah knock on wood. So many things, we have yeah. episodes recorded all the way throughout that's the amazing, year like yeah. till the end almost kind of mid-year which is so crazy mashallah it's awesome so excited thank you guys so much um and we have more in store for you let's do your infamous bye bye (laughs) (laughs) love it